All right. Well, good to see all of you today as well, and uh, my privilege to be here. I, I, I'm going to pause and let's let's pray for China. Our Father, we uh, have no idea uh, what uh, people are up against that are in these uh, closed-off cities. Uh, but Father, we pray that it can be corrected, and that uh, uh, the um, sickness, perhaps even death, uh, count will be few, and that you'll work some miracles over there. Uh, Lord, we thank you that uh, you are thoroughly adequate uh, to do, and you always work according to your will, and your plan is always best. But we lift up uh, the country, we lift up a, a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ who are a part of it. And uh, pray, Father, that you'll be strong on their behalf. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, our residence today is back in the Gospel of John, chapter 14. And uh, in chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus makes that uh, very familiar statement. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. Now, when he said that, he was speaking to really, enemy number one that people have today, and that is kind of heart trouble. And the appropriate uh, follow-up question would be for me to just uh, ask you today, uh, are you experiencing a measure of dissonance and a measure of trouble today? Uh, maybe perplexed or mystified, confused, maybe a bit discouraged because of some of the issues that you're having to deal with uh, currently. Uh, maybe there's a broken relationship that you might have that you've, uh, you're, you're dealing with right now. Maybe you're estranged from a, a family member uh, or experiencing some sort of a rift in a friendship. That which used to be pretty tight isn't... Uh, so much uh, more right now. Uh, perhaps you're staring down the gun barrel at an uncertain future because the job fell through or the promotion never materialized. Uh, the engagement broke off. You're just not sure how to regroup. Or maybe you've been confronted afresh by your own personal failure. Uh, your anger, your lust, your selfishness maybe has been exposed for everybody to see in a public fashion, and you feel the shame of having kind of your soft underbelly exposed like that. You know, a broken relationship, a clouded future, and a sense of inadequacy and failure. Now, if you're there in at least some capacity then you're really in the company of Jesus' disciples on the night that Jesus was talking to him about this situation because it was on the eve of his crucifixion uh, the next day. And so they were all perplexed. They were all swimming. All of the, the things that they had dreamed of, of uh, being with Jesus as he's in charge and being his, uh, his top top people that uh, is doing, carrying out what Jesus wanted to do, all of that was, was actually just totally dissolved because God had a different plan. 
uh, and their futures uh, just didn't fit in with that plan. And they ended up actually denying and even deserting, and we know that on that last night, uh, deserting the one that had never failed them. Now, these little verses that uh, we read just a few minutes ago in John 14 really give us a message of, const- of, of consolation. It's a very short text, but Jesus offers some comfort to his people in the form of a couple of promises. They're in your handout. The first one is this. Jesus says that after I leave, there will be a continuation of my work through my people. Now, that particular statement must have uh, been of great comfort to the disciples. Uh, They had uh, failed before so many times, but Jesus is saying, hey, that failure does not define who you are. That failure in your life is not at all final. He says in verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you that he who believes in me The works that I do, he will also do, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. So the works of Jesus can maybe be defined as physical works and spiritual works. When we talk about physical works, we're referring to his miracles. Uh, There were uh, 35 recorded miracles of Jesus in the gospel accounts. And these are just the ones that were recorded. Chances are in his three-year ministry, he did hundreds, perhaps even thousands of miracles wherever he went. But in the gospel accounts, we have a record of 35. 19 of those miracles were healing. But the people that he healed ended up dying later. On four occasions, Jesus casts out demons, but we all know that demons can re-enter. There were three resurrections that Jesus performed on people who had died. They came back to life again, but they died later. Uh, There were five food miracles, including the feeding of the multitude, but the people got hungry later on. There were four miracles about nature but the sea still got angry again, so to speak. So the, the, the physical works have to do with those kinds of miracles. The spiritual works would be more in tune to those occasions when a man or a woman or a young person's heart was totally changed and they embraced Christ as their Savior, as their Lord, as the one that they wanted to follow. Now, the the spiritual works would be uh, more significant than the physical works because the physical works were were temporal and the spiritual works were eternal. Now, when Jesus left this earth and went back to the Father, we have a record of that in Acts chapter 1 with the ascension of Jesus. But then in Acts chapter 2, what God did was send the Holy Spirit down to, uh, to the disciples, to the followers of Christ themselves. And it was the disciples who operated for their remaining years on earth, however long they happened to live. They operated in the power of the Holy Spirit. And interestingly, so you've got 
the ascension of Jesus in Acts 1 and the Spirit coming down on the disciples in Acts chapter 2. And then all of a sudden, the church begins to take off. And so it's, a, it's amazing what, in fact, is happening here and how God is taking with, with the departure of Jesus, the ministry was going to expand because the multitude of people was going to carry it on. And the disciples were able to do the same things that Jesus did in these early chapters of the book of Acts. They were healing people and all kinds of wonderful things were happened that were authenticating the realization that Jesus Christ has a plan for all of us. So it was, so it was great. So the apostles did those same kinds of physical and spiritual acts, and people were being healed and trusting Christ and so forth. Now, it was a very unique era as the church was getting started. You see, the canon of New Testament literature, our New Testament period, the books in the New Testament, weren't even written yet. Uh, the disciples wrote most of them. The Apostle Paul was still a heretic. He hadn't even been converted yet, and he wrote 13 of the New Testament letters, uh, maybe 14, depending on where, what author you assign Hebrews to. But nevertheless, all of this was just kind of getting off the ground. And uh, uh, good things were happening. Now, the confusing aspect of verse 12 is this. Uh, Jesus said, even greater works are you going to do than Jesus did. And that's a little bit of a head scratcher. And what did Jesus mean by that? Let me illustrate a little bit. I brought along a, a little thing here. I uh, wish I could have filled it, but I didn't have any. But this here is a little gumball machine, and it's made out of the finest walnut wood and so forth. And, uh, it, you know, you can unscrew the lid, pour the gumballs in there. You can put this little lever like this. It drops down the hole and comes right out here. If uh, I ordered a bunch of gumballs online from Amazon, they didn't arrive this morning, so it's really a bummer. I wanted to show you how it worked and everything. But uh, actually, this was built, um, uh, you know, I, my son, I, I had a, a nine-year-old son way back about 30 years ago. I have four sons, but I was talking about the, the second son. And he liked messing around with me in the garage and building a few things. And I, I built a few things myself, and, but nothing all that great. But we did have a master craftsman in our church. And he called uh, Stephen, who was about nine years old at the time, over to his garage, and they built that thing together. I mean, uh, Stephen worked on it, and he worked on it. And in other words, it was just a really a kind of a combination of the both of them. Now, let me ask you a question. Uh, is it a greater feat for a skilled craftsman to do this all by himself, or is it a greater feat for him to do that through a nine-year-old boy? See, the answer is obvious. Uh, it really is. Now, listen to this. For Christ to work directly on a lost soul regenerate that soul, give eternal life to that soul so that that person begins to walk with Christ for the rest of his life and ultimately goes to glory. 
Is it easier for God to do it just through Christ alone? Or is it a greater feat still for Christ to do it through you and me? And the answer is obvious. It's the more difficult feat. It's the greater feat to Christ to do something through us, imperfect as we are. He uses us to reach out to the gospel. He could come down and do whatever he wants to do, but he chooses to do it through his church. So whether or not you're a teacher or a doctor or a plumber or a pilot or a programmer or an engineer or a student or a housewife or an attorney, whatever you happen to do, God says, I'm going to choose to accomplish my purposes on earth through you. And I could even personalize it a little bit more, speaking up, I choose to operate on earth and do my work through you here at Harvest Community Church. And for those of us who have blown it big time, and that's chances are everybody in the room, that's really good news. He never gives up on us. He continues to say, hey, listen, just repent, go back, we'll start all over again, and we'll do better next time. And that's just the long-suffering nature of our God with us, that somehow he can use us to reach the world for his own glory. So God will continue to do great things as we communicate that people have value and that people are the objects of God's love. So there's a second source of comfort uh, that uh, we have. And uh, in other words, we're going to commune with the Lord through prayer. It says in verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father will be glorified in the Son. And then he continues, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Uh, what I want to do is just comment on three little simple thoughts here, the importance of prayer, the purpose of prayer, and the condition of prayer. First of all, the importance of prayer. Prayer is important simply because it points really to the origin of our own heart. Anthropologists have studied all kinds of cultures around the globe, and they've kind of concluded that prayer is the involuntary reflex of the human heart. In other words, no matter how unbelieving a person is, and you know, they could be a total and complete atheist, but there will be episodes in his or her life where they really pray. You know, you think about our own country here in America. You know, when, for instance, when our soldiers have been captured or when a natural disaster hits our own country, uh, maybe when a, a very pronounced, uh, well-known public figure is in grave danger, what will happen is our national leaders will usually call for America to pray. And it, it won't necessarily be the Christian community that prays, interestingly enough. Uh, we've seen this before, particularly back in the 80s and the Iran hostage crisis and all of those things that happened back then. But, but everybody, interestingly enough, finds situations in their own life where they reach their own wit's end and they even pray. You know, Mark Twain, who wrote a number of really fun books, but he was an ardent unbeliever. 
But on one occasion, when his wife was in the hospital and, and near to death, he says and testifies, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. You know, on a, a few occasions in my own experience as a pastor, uh, I've heard people say, you know, who have absolutely no regard for any religious system whatsoever, when I wound up in the hospital or when this disease was affecting somebody that was in my family, I prayed and I prayed like I'd never prayed before. And we get to thinking, well, the point simply is this. When our defenses are down, when we're not thinking but simply reacting, when terrible things are going on around us, when we're absolutely desperate, it's during those times that we discover very much at the core of the being what we are really like. And in those dire moments, when all pretensions drop, we discover at the core of our being that everyone, in here and out there, everyone is in some way very religious. You know, for the Christian, prayer becomes something of a rock of stability in the midst of daily life. It's kind of calmness in the midst of the storm. And everybody knows Everybody knows that we, we need that. You know, when you go over to Barnes & Nobles, for instance, one of the things that you discover when you, you, you look in particular sections of that uh, uh, bookstore is that there's just choked over with volumes on meditation and, and feeding your inner being and all of this stuff. Uh, you know, those books would say, hey, look inside you. You've got the power. Whereas the scriptures come and say, you know what? You don't look inside yourself. You simply look up because God is the one who has the power. Pour your heart out to the infinite one whose eternal vision will yield perspective and poise to you and to me. So prayer reveals that we're not God, but prayer reveals that we have a deep need for the Lord. Now, the importance of prayer. Uh, the purpose of prayer is given to us in verse 13. Uh, the, I should say the, the purpose of prayer we're looking at is given to us in verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So the purpose of prayer, all prayer, is that God, the Father, would be glorified. You know, and it's, it's part of our, our mission statement as a church here. Uh, we we're, we're live our lives to the glory of God by loving those whom Christ loved. And uh, the glory just has to do with weightiness. It has to do with substance, with matter. And when we glorify God, we're simply telling God that he matters to us, that he's the one that has substance, that he's the one that we, that we lift up and exalt. And I've got a lot of anxiety in me at times, but you know, the best part of prayer is that I pray that somehow God would reduce the anxiety in me, but, but the purpose of prayer is simply to be glorified by God. And so the, the purpose of prayer always precedes the petition that we have on our own behalf. Uh, we want, to, we want to glorify the Lord. We want to lift up. We want to say, God, you're weighty. You matter to me more than anything else in the world. 
and I trust you implicitly. I'm going to give you this request because I know you'll know what to do with it. You know, pilots that fly by instrumentation set their coordinates of their destination, and they really never deviate from that course. And when you pray, you set your coordinates on the glory of the Lord, and you never deviate from that. Now, each week, uh, there are things in my own heart about which I can easily become anxious. And God knows, however, that my greatest need, my greatest need is for me to exalt him for who he is, for what he has done, and then proceed to give him my anxieties. So praise precedes petition. Now, the, uh, that's really about the only way to keep my own life in balance. Uh, you know, a number of years ago, uh, probably a few decades back, they didn't build washing machines with the same degree of thoroughness that they do today. You know, I remember back uh, as a young dad or so forth, and all of a sudden the, uh, you know, the clothes in the washing machine, uh, you know, when the spin cycle was about to, to take charge, the clothes were disproportionately distributed. They were on one side of the thing, and all of a sudden, the drum will start banging against the, the door or the wall of the actual washing machine. And when you hear that, you take off and you run back in there and uh, redistribute the clothes so that it'll spin correctly. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, what happens when it just gets off the center, it just bangs. And so the, the message of Scripture oftentimes is that we need to make sure that we get the main thing as the main thing, centering our lives on Christ. If we make uh, Jesus Christ, if we make his glory uh, our center of gravity, then, uh, uh, then we're going to be okay. If he's not that, then of course there's going to be a, a kind of a purpose breakdown in our lives. We'll become unbalanced and we'll end up banging ourselves in the walls of our own soul. See, if we, if we lie for monetary grain, then we realize that we're not living for God's glory. We're living for just personal gain. If we can't forgive somebody who hurt us, ultimately, uh, you know, our center of gravity is our honor and our reputation and those kinds of things. But so what prayer is, is simply oftentimes just rushing into the laundry room, opening the lid, redistributing the context are the contents of our life that have kind of gotten out of whack. And it reminds us that nothing but God can bear the weight of being God in your life and in my life as well. Anything else will simply be crushed under the weight of our own fallen humanity. So the purpose of prayer is to glorify God. Now the condition of prayer is that it must be done in Jesus' name. Verse 14 says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, I was reading a, a book on prayer from Tim Keller this week, and he had a really neat little thing about it. He said, prayer is so powerful that uh, God has to put a safety latch on it. And then he writes, if God didn't 
put this condition on it, it would be like handing a toddler Aladdin's lamp and God playing the role of a genie. He says, give a child three wishes without condition and we'd all be doomed. And you think about that. It's really true. I mean, how often do you, those of you who have a toddler in the house, walk around following your toddler saying, yes, yes. Why yes? Of course, yes. No, we say, we say no. You can't eat that rock. No, you can't lick that light bulb. You know, you know that's... Anyway. <laughs> you know, we're to pray in Jesus' name. That's the condition. Now, what does it mean to use the phrase, in the name of? And let me explain that a little bit. Uh, If you assault a police officer, the penalty that will incur to you will be greater than that of assaulting a civilian. And we really don't mind that because police officers come in the name of a municipality. And an attack on a police officer really means it's an attack on all of us. It's an assault on our ability to live together. And as people, law enforcement officers aren't better than anybody else on the planet, but because they represent a community, when they're assaulted, everyone is going to lose. So when we mention the name of God, it's not just simply a label. The name embodies all that God is. He is the eternally existent one. He is the creator of the world. He is the redeemer of his people. And Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name, anything which is really consistent with who I am, is what it means in my name, then I'll do it. I'll do it. So in essence, we should say, God, I am asking for this, but I only want it if it honors you and if it's good for me. And, you know, ultimately, God is so good that he will usually give us what we would have asked for if we would have known what he knew. Let me uh, give you a closing thought here. Our prayer reveals the nature of Christianity, and Christianity functions like a family. We understand that here. And persistent prayer only makes sense on family terms. You know, children are relentless in what they request, uh, little children. Only a child has the audacity of hanging on to his father's sleeve or her father's sleeve and asking for the same thing over and over and over again. And the child does this without understanding what her father even does. You know, that's just kind of the way big people happen to behave. But when a person trusts Jesus as Savior, he or she is adopted into the family of God, and they now have access to their Heavenly Father through the person of Jesus Christ. So what do we do as a people? Well, we act like a child, and we spend the rest of our life asking God for big things, asking God for little things, knowing that our Heavenly Father will sort things out and give us what will make us most happy in the long run. 
And you say, well, why do, I, why do I need to keep on asking? Why do I need to be fervent in prayer? Why, 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 do, why can I just ask him one time and uh, have him come through? And uh, the answer to that, and R.C. Sproul answers that question pretty well. He says the answer to that is because Christianity is a relationship. It's not a philosophy. It's not a concept. It's a person. And dads love to have you seek their presence and learn their wisdom. You know, how many times does God tell you that he loves you in this book? I've heard people ask this question before, pastors ask this question before. How many times does God tell you that he really, really loves you? Uh, perhaps at least hundreds in the Bible itself, hundreds, maybe even more than that. But he tells us in all kinds of different ways that he loves us. He doesn't just do things once. He just keeps coming back and doing it again and again and again. And the reason that he doesn't do it once is because, because we're a person and we need to hear it again and again and again. You know, my, you, know you say, well, why can't God tell us that why doesn't he just tell us once right at the beginning that he loves us and that would be it? And the reason he doesn't do that is because we need to hear it more and more times. You know, my wife, as you well know, she's a psychologist and she does all kinds of different counseling, individual and marital counseling and everything. But uh, what, you know, just say for instance, she had a couple come in and she's talking to them and they're talking to her they're having marriage problems. And uh, Suzanne asked the gentleman, uh, how often do you tell your wife that you love her? And what if he said, well, I told her I loved her on the day we were married, and that stands till I revoke it. It doesn't work that way. You see, we need to hear it over and over and over again. Uh, you know, I don't know how often I tell my wife that I love her, um, but she's never told me to do it less. Uh, perhaps she would like me to do it more. Um, and so, you know, I want to get pretty good at that kind of thing. Well, you know, we, we want to do that with the Lord. Uh, you know, the, the Lord is a person. And he's created us uh, for such a way and loves us in a way that we can't even begin to calculate. And the idea of saying loving father is so significant, is so significant that, that the father wants to hear it again and again and again from the children that he has redeemed and that he has saved from all, uh, for all of eternity, and that will ultimately be in that uh, huge worship choir someday, uh, giving full glory to the, to the Lamb of God for what he has done to get us to this particular place. We, we need to hear it again and again and again. And Jesus offered, is offering these words to his troubled disciples. You know, uh, he's saying, listen. And we are his disciples as well. Let me just spread it out. He said, we have work to do on this earth. 
You know, we've got uh, families to, to raise. We've got people to reach. We've got a testimony that uh, we need to be ready to share. There's so much going on. But he says, hey, listen, let's do this together. You're not on your own. I am with you. And here we have a church body where we encourage one another to do that. And where we rejoice when something happens that is just truly miraculous in an individual's life. He says, we are family and we'll do it together. And the basis of uh, a fellowship like this is that we can't go it alone in life. We need one another. Nobody is strong enough to, to not have the fellowship of the body. And so, you know, if we're serving God, then we need one another in order to do that. We can't go solo in that kind of a venture itself. And so we meet together, we strengthen each other each week because we know that there's a lot of upsetting things that are going to happen to us in the weeks between our meetings together, just the way life is. And so we, we come around and we say, all right, I'm going to live for the glory of God. I, I'm going to take every advantage I have to show kindness and love and maybe occasionally do it with words. But I want people to know that I love and respect them and I value them as human beings because they are infinitely valuable to the God that we serve and the God that we love. Selah. God bless you. Father, thank you. For the privilege of being reminded, really, of uh, how much you think of us. And sometimes, Father, uh, we have a hard time uh, buying into that simply because of our own occasional carnality and uh, stiff-necked resistance. But, Father, you are so gentle. You never give up. You uh, continue to encourage us. And Lord knows, for whatever reasons, some in this room right now are, are battling with something that uh, they need some relief on. And uh, Father, you are thoroughly adequate for that. And we pray, Father, that uh, in some cases, uh, those uh, miraculous events uh, that always aren't looked on that, sometimes is coincidental, but uh, Father, you're in charge. And we pray that uh, our focus would be in a place where we would be useful servants in the course of the day. And when we come to the end of each day, thankful for who you are and as we fall asleep for to whom we belong. Thank you for that, Father. In Christ's name, amen.